From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 251, and today I'm joined by filmmaker Sean Cisterna. Sean's films are Full Out, Kiss and Cry, and most recently, From the Vine. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. So we're sitting down to watch Miller's Crossing. I'm Jeremy, and I have seen this film quite a few times, but not in a while. And I'm here with... I'm, I'm uh, Sean Cisterna. Nice to, nice to be here, Jeremy. I have not seen this movie. I know nothing about it. But you, you own a copy, though, right? I bought a copy. It's still covered in cellophane, but it was one of those movies that... I remember being young, like 10 years old or so when it came out, and it was one of those movies that I'd seen Raising Arizona, and my, my 10-year-old self loved it, and knowing that this was the Coen brothers, but having seen a trailer at the time, it was one of those movies that, you know, maybe your parents rented, but... I knew as a kid I wouldn't quite understand what was going on. Yeah. It's definitely... Like, the Coens have a couple different flavors, right? They have, like, super over-the-top comical, like, very broad. Right. But within their their thing they do, which is, like, um, Raising Arizona and, like, Intolerable Cruelty and Hail Caesar and those kind of movies. And then they have, like, their darker side of things. And this was... I guess Blood Simple being their first feature was their first dark one but then this was the first one after that that returned back to those not dark's not the right word but definitely serious? not def- serious more serious yeah definitely not like if you look at like the guys from raising arizona it's right. like oh this is a different energy yeah i mean i, I love the, the quirkiness i love the world that they set up um every film has their own unique um world like you can think of oh brother where art thou it has a very clear oh, i love it color palette and, and tone and style and music um, you know, yeah. Same with Barton Fink. You know, it's a nineteen whatever forties Hollywood satire. And yeah, and that that was either just after this or just yeah. that was right after this one. But this one, it just even from the trailer, like I haven't even seen a trailer since I was a, a younger person. But um, it just didn't seem like it had those elements to it. So I've always avoided it. Oh, so I'm hopeful that I'll, I'll like it. But it, it seemed like it didn't seem Cohen esque to me. What is it? You're like, do you have other uh, Cohen black holes? Uh, no, not that <gasps> I can think of. This is going to plug this the final the, this Cohen? This is the only... Yeah, because I've seen everything. Even uh, Hudsucker Proxy. I love um, Hudsucker. I'm one of those few people yeah. that really like Hudsucker. Yeah. Um, no, uh, everything. I th- I've seen everything. And you've seen the recent to the... Um, Buster Scruggs and... Yeah, Buster Scruggs I really enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Like, not Tom all Leeds. of them work. Yeah. But there's so many of them that do. Yeah. And what, was, what I love about Buster Scruggs is like... It gave you almost all the different flavors of the Coens in one piece. Yeah. Like, there were some pieces that were darker, some pieces that were way over the top. Yep. I gotta rewatch that one, because I really, really enjoyed that. But, as as far as Miller's Cross, I couldn't give a synopsis. I don't... I think it's a mob movie, from what I remember. I know Gabriel Burns in it, so... I'm thinking it's not an Italian mafia movie, so... That, that's all I know. And I remember the poster, just two guys standing in a leafy field in the autumn in in silhouette or something like that. That sounds right. Very vague memories of what this movie's about. That is very correct. Uh, Well, I'm very excited for you to watch this. Mm -hmm. Especially knowing that it's like you're not a Cohen holdout in general. This is just like the one blip on the radar. Yep. So I'm excited to like help help you fill in that hole. You're going to fill in my hole tonight. Thank you. (laughs) We'll be right back after I fill Sean's hole. We're we're getting canceled from this right now. (laughs) Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. So we just finished, and and oh, you want me to start? Yeah, um, oh yeah, I've seen it before. 
I, uh, I was confused at first. I'm going to be honest. There's a lot of exposition off the top and, and character names were thrown out and I wasn't quite grasping who they were. Because they hadn't really introduced them, right? They mentioned Bernie... I, I think the first time you see John Turturro in the movie, you're probably at least half an hour in. Right. And they've mentioned him by that point, you know, how many times? Yeah. You had to whisper to me at one point, that's John Turturro. <laughs> so, I, like, you were giving away, like, um, helping me fill in these plot holes in my head that I was clearly questioning and thinking I was stupid watching it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, thank you for, like... That was a, a similar... Like, I remember that experience the first time I watched it. Like, I didn't, like love it the first time I watched it because I felt confused mm-hmm. and it was hard because there's a lot going on it's very Shakespearean mm-hmm. like with all like the different like gangs uh, or organizations whatever you want to call them and allegiances and who's screwing who and yeah. what's going on here so it took me probably my second or third watch before I was like ah this is this and this time through I was like I was able to follow it all yeah so um yeah, I definitely feel like I need another viewing to, to piece together some early information that I might have missed. But uh, but but to go in on on Miller's Crossing, knowing the other um, uh, pieces of the Cohen puzzle, it was very uh, disjointed, to, disjointing to me. Like I I, I I was expecting one thing, but this delivered something else. You yeah, know what I mean. So I was I was looking for the quirky characters and the. Um, the uh, the bizarre situations to, to kind of unfold, but when it starts off so, yeah, like you said, Shakespearean and, and dramatic, like it just didn't feel very Cohen-y. But there were characters, like, you know, when, when Turturro showed up and, and Steve Buscemi, and uh, there, were, there were hints of those um, quirky characters that happened later in their filmography, but um, I was taken aback by, uh, by Gabriel Byrne's character, Tom. And yeah. He was just so... Straight faced in a world of these bizarre, over the top characters. Yeah. So, and did that not work for you? Uh, it just, I, I don't know. I just, it, it probably, no, it probably didn't work as, as it, it just felt tonally off for some reason. It yeah. didn't feel like he fit into that universe. And, and for me, that like, that almost works for me because and because people comment a lot of the time throughout the movie that it's like how quiet he is and stoic he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has little moments where he's a bit of a smartass. It is. It would be interesting, like, in an alternate world of casting to throw in, like, imagine you had, like, a George Clooney in there or someone, right. you know, like that, like, because he can do that, that quiet, stoic thing. But I wonder if... Uh, like what the casting pro because they never worked with Brian again. Uh Byrne? Brian. Gabriel Byrne. Yeah. Um so I don't know if it was just a situation mm-hmm. where, you know, there was no part that was right or they just didn't get on with him mm-hmm. or whatever it was. But it is interesting, like I don't disagree that he doesn't feel like he automatically fits inside this world. But I think I've also just seen it so many times now I just accept that mm-hmm. Who's in it, and I don't think about it too much. So that's interesting. That's been a common critique in, in the past about this character. I don't know. Like, oh, okay. the, I, I I don't know actually. I, I haven't heard it, mm-hmm. but um, but I, I'm curious if people think that way. It is definitely like a, a a bit of a mishmash in tone. Like they're definitely trying to be somber and and reflective, but also like they throw in these and even like this almost every other character besides. Um, Gabriel's character is is kind of Cohen-esque. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Even you get um, uh, John Polito's Casper. Yeah, opening speech, the ethics. Yeah. It's so great. And, and and I love that that's like that guy, that's that character, is that's all he's about is the ethics, right? Mm-hmm. And I love, like, he might be one of my favorite characters because at least that guy is not a double-crosser. He knows, he's a criminal, but he knows what, yeah. what's what, he has a, he's a code that he Absolutely, lives by. yeah. You know, but also like I love Albert Finney's character. Yeah, like that Leo. scene, that scene where he protects himself. Oh, like he's on his slippers beforehand. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> like, the, see, those are like little um, Cohen-y things that uh, I was expecting more of in the film. But yeah, it was. But maybe this is early in their filmography. They were just kind of finding their voice. Yeah, I want to say and, this is like their because it was uh, Blood Simple, then Raising Arizona. What else was this? Their third movie. I, I looked that up. I feel like Barton Fink, like I really got into him. Barton Fink's after this. Okay. Um, I'm almost entirely sure Barton Fink is after this, but... Um, 
Yeah, so you know, even you and I have been have made more than three films, so we've we've had more time to refine our voices. It's true. We all get you know? better as we go. Yeah. Well, we just learn different yeah. different techniques and different ways in. But let me just pull. I'm looking it up. Uh, yeah, this is right after Miller's Crossing. This what is a, Miller's Crossing. Sorry, this is right after Raising Arizona. Gotcha. Uh, so this is their third movie in Barton St. Fink's number four. Gotcha. But they almost shot them back to back because um, there's three years between Raising Arizona and Miller's, but then Miller's and Barton are only a year apart. Ah, okay. So uh, they must they must have made them back to back. And they have a lot of shared cast, like Buscemi's in both. Yeah. Totoro is the lead of Barton Fink. Um, but they also have like a bit of a, a repertoire of characters and mm. actors they reuse, right? Yeah. Even Francis McDormand like showed up for like two minutes. Oh, cameo. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, by that point, I'm sure they were a couple. Yeah. Um, her and Joel. Yeah. Uh, so that's the weird thing, like viewing this through the lens of, you know, history and, and just knowing where it fits in <laughs> into this cinematic universe is, uh, um, yeah, just, uh watching all these players you know from their other films show up in this movie. So that that's another reason why I found it maybe um, confusing at the beginning because every time someone new popped up, I got so excited and mm. and uh, I just reflected on how youthful they looked. Well, you you even spotted the Sam Raimi cameo. Yeah, I was I was staring at him for a second. Like he, he wasn't even a named character. He was just no. a guy in the street who shoots guns and and gets shot. Yeah, so Ramy uh no were he they they he they kind of came up together cuz Joel was the assistant editor on Evil Dead. Okay. because um, he came up as an editor and so they knew each other from from that. And so right. I think they just kind of became filmmaker friends. Yeah. And that probably is so was cool. just like, "Hey, you want a little small part just throw yeah. yourself in on Subway?" So you were uh you noticed in the credits that only Joel gets directing credit yes, on this. Yes. Yeah. So the reason is up until it was quite a while. It wasn't until like uh, like at least halfway through their filmography or later that they started both uh, getting director credit. And the reason was just the DGC rule was that you couldn't have more than one director on a project. Hmm. So DGA, DGA, thank you, <laughs> not DGC. That's our union. Um, DGA rule: you can't have more than one director on a project, which is uh, which I think got changed because of Sin City. Because um, Rodriguez wanted to co-direct it with Frank Miller, and Frank Miller wasn't a DGA member, and they wanted to permit him. And also Tarantino came in and directed the scene, and they were like, well, you guys can't do this. And they're like, okay, then we're going to quit the DGA. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not get too excited. So it was like Rodriguez putting his foot down and going, no, we're going to allow ourselves to have more than one director on this project, and you're going to be okay with that. And from that moment on, they became... I think from that moment on, that kind of opened up I could be getting this wrong, so if I'm wrong with this, nerds, feel free to shout at me. <laughs> but uh, I feel like that was it was because of that that they were then able to later on share credits. Because before it was always like, you know, they the two of them wrote, directed, and produced together, but Ethan always got the producer credit and Joel got the director credit. Mm-hmm. But they both did both jobs, mm-hmm. right? Um, but then after that, they just started sharing all of them. Mm-hmm. And they even um, edit their own movies, but they don't take credit for it. They have a. Ah, do you know that story? No. Oh, this is fun. So, they um, Roderick Jane is the name of their editor. Yeah. Who is not a real person, and nobody knew that until Fargo, because Roderick Jane got nominated for an Oscar. No shit. And they had to call the Academy and be like, "So here's the thing, Roderick won't be able to make the the ceremony." And like, well, that's a shame. That's too bad. Uh, uh, and the other thing is, if he wins, that's kind of a problem because you don't really have anyone to send the award to. They're like, "What do you mean?" It's like, "Well, he's not. There is no rudder chain. The rudder chain is us. Like the pseudonym we yeah. use because they didn't want to have like their name too many credits. Too many yeah, credits. Yeah. So they put a, you have a pseudonym. But then they wanted to hire an actor to, to they, can we can we hire someone <laughs> to, to at least seat yeah. fill and just and and just don't let him win. Yeah, like we're okay with not winning." Just can we have a seat filler just so we can keep up yeah. the ruse? And they said no because there was that thing with Brando back when he like hired yeah. like an actor to be a North American yeah. to be like play a, um, a Native American, um, and so they wouldn't allow it. And so kind of the ruse came up, and that's how people found out about it. Although yeah. it's still not public. Like, yeah, no, it's, it's, I had no idea. But but it's fun. But they've kept up the ruse, and I don't know if they they take the editing credit now. But I remember they were still like on the on the commentary track for the man who wasn't there, the one with Billy Bob yeah. Thornton. Uh, 
it's it's them and Billy Bob Thornton. It's a fucking hilarious commentary track. And about halfway through it, there's just a moment where Billy Bob's like, hey, by the way, I ran into your editor the other day. And they're like, oh, yeah? It's like, yeah, how is Roderick? He's like, ah, oh, that guy. And he tells a story about Roderick Jane as if it's real. And they're all playing along. It's But if you know that they're all yeah. bullshitting. It's just an extra layer of fun. Yeah. Because they start... He's like, that guy's fucking tall. He's like, he really is, isn't he? He's like, yeah, I ran into him in a health food store. He was like, get, he was buying like a two minutes of improv about this imaginary person. Fake editor. I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Every time um, you mentioned uh, Carter Burwell did the music. Carter Burwell, yeah. And every time the score came on, it felt like I was in the Shire. I don't know if you noticed that, but it, um, it very, very... Lord of the Rings-esque. Yeah, well, they're playing with the Irish, because it's yeah. like an Irish mob, so they're playing in with, like, flutes and I honestly felt like it was in the Shire. Every time they went into the forest and had these beautiful tracking shots, and uh, it felt very much like Mr. Frodo was going off to, to Mordor. Yeah, because it's interesting, because you were asking where it takes place, and they never say, and, and just all I could find online was just that it's kind of a an unnamed... Fictional mob Prohibition-era yeah. mob town... You know, yeah. feels like if if you go with the Irish, you got to think it's like maybe it's Boston. Maybe yeah. I'm trying to think of, like, although there was Irish mobs in New York, too. Yeah. Although yeah. it doesn't feel like New York. It doesn't feel big enough to be New York. No, because like they're walking down the streets and they were they were empty at times, like shooting gunfire was uh, was happening. But no pedestrians in the street. Or yeah. Hardly any. But it also reminds me, I mean, this was also where, have you seen Sopranos? Like, all the Sopranos? Yeah. So this is like that episode where they go in the woods and they get lost, right? Sure, yeah. Like that's I, I, That always felt like an homage mm-hmm. to this. Yeah. Um, okay. But like, the bad version of that, where it doesn't go well. Right. <laughs> yeah. Christopher and Polly get lost in the woods and the yeah. guy gets away. And um, Did you feel like um, there was a Godfather homage at the beginning there? That's what it felt like. It definitely feels like, yeah, they're paying homage, but it's also very much their own version of it. But there's a darkness to it that... It's interesting. Like, I I, I, I like the... There isn't... That's not true. There are Coen Brother movies I'm mad on. Mm -hmm. Some of the later ones are very hit and miss. But but there's something about it that is just really well made. Absolutely. You know, it's beautiful to look at. Like, their use of wide lenses Mm -hmm. and just how they love to show off the... um, the area there's that great shot and i was like is that a zoom or is that a dollar or is it both there's this one shot near the beginning where you're in uh the apartment tom's apartment yes and, and it starts off wide in, and yeah. it keeps on pushing in and pushing in into a like, into a, a clo- screamer yeah I love yeah that. and i'm like it's got to be a combination of the two because it's definitely it looks like a zoom when it starts off yeah but then like there's no way a zoom would go that yeah close like what the fuck lens yeah. is that, that, they're able that to- <laughs> yeah all in a single take huh like in a yeah, it's a great shot. Conversation, yeah. Yeah, so all I could think of this time, I'm like, I think it's both. I, mean, I think they're doing both with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just the way they use wide lenses on like medium shots and, 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 and like close-ups with those faces, like John Polito's face and that guy that plays the the guy that rats out to Turo, the boxer, yeah. who keeps on screaming. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Like he's <laughs> got that amazing face and when you put a wide lens on it close-up, yeah. it just... Super distorted. Yeah, it looks like a cartoon character. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I uh, loved it. I loved the, the, the use of um, shocking violence, too, like in the middle of a scene. Um, you know, it starts off with, uh, what, that chair smack in the face. Yeah. The and then he goes, Jesus, Tom. <laughs> he walks away, and then yeah. Tic Tac comes in and beats the shit out of him. Tic yeah. <laughs> Great, great gangster names. Tic Tac Casper. When, yeah, Tic Tac Casper. When uh, Polito smacks his son, it's so loud. Oh <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What's yeah. the matter? Somebody yeah. hit you? Yeah. <laughs> it makes me laugh. Yeah. Because beating children's funny. <laughs> uh, no, but they, um, they do violence well. They're like, and, and they're often like quick moments that yeah, uh, disarming. That of, yeah. So, but then they're over. Yeah. Right. It's it's very it's like there's a bit of a shock, but there's also something about that's you know akin to real life. Where it's just like violence that comes out of nowhere. It's like, what the fuck? Like, you know, yeah. we all lived through, you know, the last week was the Oscars. And, you know, this, oh, the, slap. the, the yeah. slap that ever, that everyone talked about for three yeah. days. And we're talking about now. It's like, geez, what? Yeah. What? Uh, just 15 seconds ago, life was fine. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what? what? Why? Yeah. There's so many other ways to deal with that. Right. <laughs> anyway, we don't need to go into that because yeah. I feel like I talked about <laughs> that more than I want to. Yeah, sure. But but similar to that, like it, it's more shocking when you're not expecting it, and also you're just like, mm-hmm. because it throws you off. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're you know if the filmmakers are doing that purposefully and know what they're doing, it can be very effective. 
Yeah. You know. So what is it? Is it like the you, you trick the audience into thinking it's a it's a calm calmer situation than the I guess it's a false then? sense of security, not letting them know. Like there's that. I mean, that one great scene where uh, he shows up at Casper's. And it's a scene where you comment at the end, like, what a great scene, where he kills Eddie Dean. Yeah. And um, and you're not sure, because you know that the dudes, the guy's there, and it's like, oh, fuck, they know that yeah. Tom's been lying yeah. the whole time. But then, and, and you have those great shots of Polito with the fire in the background. It looks yes. like he's the devil, oh, right? So menacing, yeah. And you're just like, this could go any 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 which way. And then he t- then he turns around and starts beating on, on Eddie Dean. And it's like, oh, okay, so... I, I don't know how you felt watching that. Like I knew where it was gonna go, but how did you feel watching that? Oh, uh, surprise! I just I just loved the 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 twists and the unique way of of staging it all and blocking it, having the the boxer character just kind of screaming throughout the scene. <laughs> like it just added an element of, of chaos to it, and and then to see Casper take a shovel and and beat his right hand man to the ground and yeah um but it's still even though it's like you could look at it and be like oh they're manipulating you but it works like Casper's sitting there going i'm gonna kill the guy that i used to trust the most mm-hmm. right he's, yeah. he's tortured right uh and for ways that you like it looks like he's angry mm-hmm. and he is too because he, he's he's been convinced now by tom who is the ultimate yeah. double crosser yeah that this guy has betrayed yeah. him i loved how casper's like outward uh Features were uh, just reflective of what's happening inside of him. Like you, you the see sweat. the sweat just dripping off his head, and uh, you just sense that stress coming out of him. Like he he was a stress character the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I love the. Uh, I don't think I've, I've ever like really caught the parallels of it, but there's two parallel scenes where Gabriel Byrne comes out of like the then you know depending on what side he's on rival club that's being raided, mm, yeah. and he just walks over to the police chief both both times. Yeah. The police is like. I'm not in charge. I don't know. This is stupid. Why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Um, yeah, man. Uh, what were some other impressions? Uh, I think just I noticed that things, uh, yeah, like the, you were talking about the fire shot. And um, it, it. I remember that Barton Fink uh, used fire. The Coen's love uh, fire. Yeah, so I don't know if what that. Uh, Especially at least at this point in his career because they go from this to Fink. Yeah, um, yeah. To just to have that background as a as a set piece to illustrate character was uh, makes me feel like I should use fire more often. <laughs> it's just it's expensive. Yeah, it's not expensive. It's yeah. just like I find it's just complicated. You've got to get permits. Yeah. it's just always it's just one. You know, as a filmmaker, it's one of those yeah. elements that it always looks great. Yeah, but then you've got to deal with the the complications yeah. that come. Around it, we have this is uh, pre-digital. Like what? Like those that? That's all. That stuff's got to be the real. Guns, yeah. Those those uh, mobster guns. Those uh, what, what are those called? Those rifles with those oh, the Tommy cylinder. guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's like tons of uh, blank action happening there, and cars crashing into trees and yeah, you blowing can't. up. And I wonder if you could do like you. They probably could have done opticals for guns, though. You think so? Because really, all it's, a, it's just a frame. Yeah. Right? It's just really a, f- a frame with just some, like, well, a little... fucking back on their face, too, so how would they... Oh, maybe not that? then. Yeah, yeah, then maybe they just were using, yeah. um, using blanks. And can you, can you watch a film still and, and not, um, judge it by, with the lens of history and knowing what you know now? Like, how... In terms of... Um, yeah, just wondering uh how they achieve things practically oh for sure like we in just that era yeah we just the last episode was gone with the wind mm-hmm. um which we watched which is have you seen all the wind no okay well that's i mean i tried we we did uh we did it over an afternoon i made i made yeah. lunch for everyone and we wow. we sat around it because it's four hours yeah, it's a I commitment know. yeah so, you know, that was half of our day was yeah. watching, watching and talking about Gone with the Wind. But there's some things in there where, like, that's 1939, 40? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1939. Um, and there's shot. It's literally one of those movies that's cast of thousands. Yeah. And they have these shots that just pull back to show, um, like, the one of the big famous shots is this, like, techno crane shot that starts on Vivian Lee and pulls back. And all of a sudden, you just see hundreds of... Mm-hmm of men like lying injured or roaming mm-hmm. around and sure probably half of them or more are dummies right mm-hmm. but it fucking looks amazing right and you and, and I know that movie won a bunch of technical Oscars and and, and for like because they advanced a lot of techniques mm-hmm. it was the first uh, color film to win best picture 
Uh, but there's also there's some comp shots in there that they're that you're looking at and going, is that green screen or mm. some form of green sc- or rear projection or whatever they were plates using or, or plates or something? Yeah. They're like, I don't quite know. How. There was two shots in the movie. I'm like, I don't know how they did it. Wow. Like, okay. and for a movie that's 80 years old now, yeah. I'm like, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. There was some cool stuff going on in there that I'm like, I'm not quite sure how they did it, and I kind of don't want to know. But don't you think of the early Coens as like the independent darlings sort of thing? For or, sure. Like that. That's why I like I just compare it to to kind of us working in, in the system. Like how, what resources did resources did they have on their on their third film that uh, that allowed them to to do stuff like this? Well, I can't even imagine the ballsiness of it because. Because what I loved about them, especially with this early era, is like their first movie is Blood Simple, which is like, uh, how do you describe Blood Simple? Simple. It's like a thriller, thriller I guess. Yeah, psychological thriller, thriller. Psychological suspense. Th- suspense thriller, maybe. And then the next thing they do is essentially an adult cartoon. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Raising like, Arizona. Yeah. You couldn't get more opposite yeah. than that. So, and then to go from that to this is, again, they're, they're doing like, something totally different than they'd done before. And then even Barton Fink after that is more like an art film. Yeah. Right? Comedy. Com- yeah. Com- like a dark comedy. Sure. Yeah. But it's like, they just kind of defied being put into any kind of box. Yeah. And it's one of those things where like, just the bravado they would have had to do to go into whatever studio or funder they were working for and be like, yeah, you know how we, that did really well. We're going to do yeah. the exact opposite thing next. That's but it was ballsy, man. But you know what it was? I think it was because they were, like, and this is something that was going on in that era, like the the late '80s, early '90s, is that you know, auteur directors were able to get films made just because of the filmmakers and not mm. the cast, nothing this. Yeah. So at that point, they're like they were able to brand the Coens as directors to watch, and so they were able to go from whatever genre to whatever genre they wanted because they had enough small loyal fan base to follow them i'm sure and like, i can't imagine these were huge mm-hmm. it wasn't a big budget film although you look at that and i'm like that's not small that's, no that's, there's some stuff going on production design in that. It's creating a whole like 1920s world out of yeah there's still like those raid exist. scenes there's cops yeah. all over they're destroying stuff there's yeah, fire there's horses going back and forth and tons of cops and, yeah, yeah so it's not a nothing no budget movie yeah but I think it was just one of those things where they, you know, it was kind of the, like you said, that beautiful indie era of really great auteur filmmakers emerging and able to just kind of get an audience to follow them so they could pivot and do different things. So how do we make that come back in oh, this era? Oh, God. It's, it's uh, through streamers, really. But even those are being taken over because it's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs because I looked at, like, um, Mark Duplass. You know yeah, Mark? love, love. So he had that great South by South speech years ago, mm-hmm. the Calvary's not coming, mm-hmm. right? And he just recently kind of issued, it wasn't a, 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 another speech uh, that you can watch on YouTube, but it was an article uh, where it was kind of like an update of that talking about the state of independent filmmaking yeah. now. Uh, and it wasn't optimistic. It was very much, it's like, look, it's like we're kind of coming to an end because even the streamers now, because when Netflix first started making all their originals, the Duplasses had an overall deal with them and they made three or four movies with them, right? And they're like, yeah, even Netflix doesn't want to make deals with us anymore. They want to make deals with like Ryan Reynolds and Adam Sandler and guys like that who just have much bigger scope and bigger audiences. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they took advantage of people like Duplass and, you know, Duplass and those guys took advantage of them too to kind of like start building more originals at a lower budget. Mm-hmm. But now that they have the numbers, they can make... An eighty million dollar movie on Netflix. There's got to be a point in, in in time soon. I hope we're turned around. Like, why, why can't we be the vinyl of uh, the film, film era? Like, so it's, indie film has got to come back in a in an exciting way. And yeah, just, and, and are we and close to that? Or the, the positive spin that Duplass put on it was that it's like we're you know we're turning more and more to television because we find that there's ways to tell these stories there. Um, in ways that you know gain audience, and so they now they have an overall with HBO, yeah, uh, and have done a bunch of shows that way. So I don't know what the answer is because it is one of those things where you're like, there's got to be some kind of middle, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and that's where we do see we do see a lot more filmmakers going to television and, and telling these stories, and that's definitely an avenue I'm interested in. Um, but I've always been interested in that too. It just hasn't, you know, 
come to fruition at this point. Yep, I see you at festivals, man. Don't you love connecting with an audience? I love film. Speak, speaking. I love it. Film and I love it so much. Like, that was the biggest fear you can't do I had. That with television. Working. No, no, you can't. Like the closest you have is like people tweet along. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you get. No, yeah. but I even had that that sadness. Um, like I was lucky enough to make two films during the pandemic. Yeah, same here. And I never got to do like the test screenings that I normally do, and even yeah. watch the film with an audience while yeah. I was fine tuning and tweaking it, which was torturous for me. But you know, I also came out of that going, and we held back on Ashgrove, which is just starting to tour now. Because Jonas and I were like, let's, I mean, it was, the nice thing was, it was a very low budget movie that we made for, with, you know, angel investors that were okay with us, with us saying, we want to sit on it until a time when we can go and watch it in the theater with people. Uh, and they were okay with that. So we, we kind of like let the movie sit for about six months or so after we finished it before we started submitting it to festivals. Mm-hmm. Because when I was about halfway through my festival tour with James Versus, that's when COVID hit, right? Yeah. I just come back from Glasgow. I, that was the year I was supposed to go to like Amsterdam and Busan mm. and all the, I can't even, I don't even want to go into the list, but I was yeah. going to do this great little tour yeah. of all these places I'd never been yeah. and with audiences I've never, yeah. never had access to. And then everything just kind of shut down yeah. and, and we, those festivals still carried on on the digital platforms, which is great, but it was just like. Yeah, you went to iTunes. I remember that. I remember it wasn't the same. Yeah, well, yeah, we pivoted for the release, but then quickly too, right? But the other, well, because we had a, um, a theatrical lined up, mm-hmm. and so what was great was that we were able to like at least take the press we were going to be doing and turn that over to digital, which isn't usually the case because most of the big newspapers in Canada, anyway, won't do coverage on films that are just releasing yeah. online. Yep. But because we had booked a theatrical and they knew that it was intended for that. Yeah they were still able to keep it. But but we were also going to continue doing festivals in Europe and other places of the country where the film hadn't been released yeah. yet. Uh, and they were okay with the fact that it was being released properly yeah. here. So, But then we just went all to digital, and it was and it was fine. It was okay, but it just, it just wasn't the same. But at least I had had that experience of watching that film with some audiences. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I was able to watch Ashgrove in Glasgow. And unfortunately, the Canadian Film Fest this year was online, yeah. so yeah. that, was, that yeah. was a big bummer. Um, our U.S. premiere is at Cinequest uh, very soon, and that's online again. But luckily, they're doing an in-person this summer hmm. that we can go to yeah. if we, we want. So I think I've, I've gotten into like five or six different festivals, and I keep turning them down because they're digital only. So uh, I'm only taking the, the uh, theatrical ones from now on. It's, just, it's so disheartening to get into a festival that you want to be a part of, and then we're doing hybrid this year, so... No, yeah, no. I get it. I get it. Um, but it's just one of those things. Yeah, it is. Even just going back to the theater, you know, recently with, with my kids and going to see stuff, it's just like, mm. it just feels good. It feels yeah. nice. And, you know, you have to do it safely and whatnot. But uh, there's something about that unified experience that I worry for. I worry that we, we're going to lose that in the next generation. And that's why it was awesome sitting here tonight watching Miller's Crossing with an audience of, of one. Right? So it, was, it was great. No. But even do the people don't even do this, right? Yeah. Like, uh, like this is... Well, Not with I, friends, at least. So you, your spouse, who you sit with all the time. But, no, uh, but even then, it's like, how often, and I'm guilty of it too, do you sit there watching something, whether it's a TV show or a movie, and you know you put your laptop out or you grab your phone, yeah. and, and you just kind of half-watch yeah. things. Yeah. Right? So if nothing else, this podcast forced me to you know put everything down and just yeah. sit there and watch. Yeah. Uh, whether it's for the first time or rewatching it with somebody yeah. else. Um, yeah, what I love about the the Coens is that just the, the world building that they do. So it's like, uh, even though it was a nondescript uh, uh, period in, in, in history or period of time, like I still, they still painted a world that I could uh, immerse myself in and, and be a part of for two hours. Yeah, it feels lived in. Like you yeah. feel like these relationships, It's comp- this one in particular is complicated because there is a lot of just like, Naming things and not necessarily introducing the characters well. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the one flaw this movie has. Uh, you know, there's many flaws. There's some flaws. Every movie has flaws. But this one, I think the flaw is in just how they don't quite introduce characters well enough that you're not sitting there going, wait, who's this and who's mm-hmm. that? And that's, and that just for me, I'm like, if I have to be pulled out of the movie and start thinking about it that way, yeah. that's probably a flaw. Yeah. Um, because really, you should just be able to, like, Glad. Not that the audience shouldn't have to work a little bit, mm-hmm. and there shouldn't be some things where you're like, wait, 
what's going on there? Like, that's good. Yeah. You want an audience to be wondering what's going to happen next. But you don't want an audience going, who is Vera again? Right. Is that guy this? Have I met? Like, even you were like the bookie guy, like Laszlo right. or whatever his name Lazara, was. Yeah. Lazaro. He's like, have we seen him? I was like, no, I don't think so. It's just a character mentioned throughout the film that you don't meet. Yeah, it's crazy. But even Buscemi's character, Mink, like, you only see him on camera once. Yeah. And then you hear him on the phone. And then when his face shows up dead, like, you don't realize it's him until later. Right. They don't call him Mink when you meet him. He's just some guy that talks. Yeah. You know, you, we recognize yeah. him now because we know it's Steve Buscemi. Yeah. But Steve Buscemi at that point, this is, you know, two years before Reservoir Dogs. Steve Buscemi is just a New York character yeah. actor. Yeah. You know? So, uh, so they just, yeah. it's one of those things where it's like, I always look at, for myself as a writer and a director, I'm like, I think my job is like, introducing characters that are important in a movie is like, how would I introduce someone to somebody at a dinner party? I want to make sure they know who they are yeah. and give them something memorable. Yep. Um, and if I don't, that's okay, but it's got to be for a reason. I think you can get away with that one character. Like, I think for like the char- John Turturro's character here, I think you can get away with that for that character because it's that idea of like you keep on hearing about them, so it's built up. So by the time you finally meet them, it's either underwhelming intentionally or it's an even better reveal. In this case, it was a great reveal. He was kind of hidden in the shadows. And well, it's the after that one great yeah. shot we talked about, yeah. right? And then it cuts and around cuts and you're like... reverse and someone's there. In but, the... And he's hiding in that yeah. chair and he's yeah. so kind of slimy and yeah. shitty already. Yeah. I love Tutorial in this movie because he just... Like, he has that great scene where he's like crying and begging for his Pleading life. for his life. And, and the next time you see him, he's such a dick. Yeah. He's like, ah, you're a pussy. Yeah. He just calls him out. <laughs> yeah. Says terrible yeah. things about him, and he's like, "And you're not going to do yeah. anything." Yeah, and you're like, and, and I think I don't know if you felt this way watching it, but I was like, oh, "I should have shot him." Yeah. <laughs> I felt for him like at the time, like when they brought him out to Miller's Crossing for the first time. Like I was convinced that he was, yeah, being um, pleading for his life and, and was being truthful, but it was just a, a ruse to. Feels like he's done that multiple times to get out of a situation. Well, the nice thing is he literally repeats it. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> then the and Brian's like, yeah. Gabriel's like, no, yeah, yeah, <laughs> not this time. I love when they when they bring um, Tom back to Miller's Crossing, and yes. you're just like, he, and you don't know that yeah. that uh, what is his face has been back and just planted a body, and it's just like, oh, this maybe this is the end. Yeah. This could be the end. Yeah. Um, and they almost do shoot him, and like they, they, the other guy just stumbles upon him. He's like, yeah. "Oh, by the way, he's over here." I was nervous. I mean, the, it was a beautiful tracking shot. They're pulling back with them. I felt like I was going to be sick, and then he was—he uh, threw up in, in the forest there. So I don't know. The, the Coens have a, a great way of using the camera to kind of reflect what the the, the characters are, are feeling and, and suspense, putting us in, a, in in their shoes in a journey. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 impeccably well crafted. I think this movie. Um, it's interesting. I haven't thought. I, I, I'll have to ask other other Cohen nerds their thoughts on the casting of uh, of Tom and whether or not they feel it was like miscast or or if they've just like me, they've seen yeah. it so many times and it was just like accepted it because that's who plays the part. Right. Yeah. If, if you could put some, a modern actor in, in that, who would it be? Oh, now. You know who he reminds me of just visually. Um, probably too young for the part still, but visually, I look at that and I'm like Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. Has okay. a similar look. But also he would, Timothy Chalamet would work in the Cohen universe. I think so. Yeah, he already he has, fits in that Wes Anderson world, right? That's so, just it. Anderson yeah. and, and he has that great, and he's just, he's great in Don't Look Up. He has mm-hmm. that really small little like mm-hmm. skater character. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would work in that, I think, because he can play that brooding darkness, but he also has like a great smirk to him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Marisha K. Harden is is literally the well, except for like the two second scene with Frances McDormand is the only female character in this whole movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, and who did she remind me of? In this, but then it's so you were saying when we watched it, you made a comment about like watching watching people when you were younger and now seeing them again later on. Yeah. Um, like through the lens of time, sort of thing. Well, the way you described it was like people that you looked up to when you were a kid, and now you're older than them. Right, yeah. So every time I watched a movie when I was younger, like I always aspired to be like these older people on screen. And then at, at some point in my life, I was the older person looking down at the the younger people. So it is very weird to go back uh, and watch a movie from what you said thirty years ago and, and yeah. see all these actors who you know now and know their faces now, but they're they're babies. It's 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 a bizarre feeling just to to know how 
I don't know, life... Uh, How young they were. Yeah. Is there any movies in particular you watched recently that you can remember that feeling of like having watched it, you know, in your youth and now you watch it, you know, at this age and go, oh shit, like it, it, feel, it feels different. Um... No, I saw Cool Hand Luke the other day. I don't know if you've ever seen that with oh, Paul, yeah. Paul Newman. Eggs. And, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so just to see. I, I was just trying to figure out how old would Paul... Like, I'm in my early 40s. Like, how how old was Paul Newman in that? Younger than that. Yeah. Yeah. In his 30s or so. It's, it's just... So, uh, it's bizarre. Yeah, it's fun to watch. Like, that's what I love about watching older movies, especially ones that I haven't seen. It's just rediscovering... It's always fun to watch the opening credits because... Sometimes you get those ca- you're like, oh god, this person has a small part in it because they hadn't broke yet, or yeah. they were still. And so yeah, sometimes yeah. you get like these great little accidents where it's like all these other actors that go on to have bigger careers sure. later on have just these small little pieces yeah, here like and there. Francis McDormand, like she was basically a yeah, a, 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 an actor with like two lines sort of thing. Well, here she's doing a cameo because she was the lead of Blood Simple, yeah, and she was in Raising Arizona too. So I think at this point she's just doing it as a cameo. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as opposed to a small part, because I think she was doing probably okay at that point. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, two movies later, they're doing Fargo. Um, wow. She's so what good, a, too. What a filmography. It's, uh... It is really, like, they are definitely, when I was coming up through film school, like, they were, if not my favorites, definitely sure. one of the ones where I'm just like, they could do no wrong for yeah. me. It wasn't until Lady Killers. I remember Lady Killers came out when I was in college, and going to the theater, so excited because yeah. everything I'd seen of the Coens, I'd loved. I loved the man who wasn't there, even yeah. though some people don't. Uh, that was the first one I watched. Going, it reminded me of how I felt like watching the Phantom Menace the first time. Where I'm oh, like, yeah, what? It can't be bad because yeah, it's it's. I waited for this. this I've was... waited for this, and I like these filmmakers, yeah. and I like this world, and it. it Maybe I just maybe I'm off today, and then they watch it. And I'm like, no, there's something wrong with it. It's just not quite. It's just not working. And that was, I remember with Lady Killers, just suddenly going, no, it's Tom Hanks is in it. It can't be. Why is it? Why don't I love this? Yeah. Why don't I love this? I yeah. want to love this. Why? Why? <laughs> and so in a movie, like that's when I know I don't like a movie when I go in loving like so many reasons to just give it a pass. Yeah, and I can't. Do you feel like they should always, um, maybe Lady Killers was a, a bigger budgeted film because it had like a certified movie star. Do you think it, they are better with restrictions and, and when you pull money away from them and they have limited means to work with? I don't, that, even, I don't think it's it that. yield a more exciting I think they film? just kind of get lost inside their own quirkiness sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's just that. I think as they've but, gotten older, they've felt less need to like follow any kind of rules when it comes to filmmaking or storytelling. You know, and sometimes that works out really, really well for them. Like the uh, the great kind of spoilers here for other movies of the Coens, but the great kind of like twist they have in No Country for Old Men yeah. with uh, Josh Brolin's character, where you're like, "What? Yeah, where's this gonna go? Yeah. You know, where that works really, really well because it's effective. It's you're not expecting it. It's shocking uh, and brutal and great. But then you have other movies like Lady Killers or uh, I'm trying to think of other recent um, movies. Hail but, uh, Caesar. Hail Caesar, yeah, yeah, where they just feel like just overly quirky. Yeah, for the quirk's sake. Yeah, it's mostly their comedies. Like when they go really with the big, big, big broad comedies, they kind of go off. Yeah. They either work really well like, and, it, and it's just gangbusters like Oh Brother or it's like those ones uh, where it's like, huh. And, and even in Tolerable Cruelty, I didn't mind but it's still one of their kind of lesser films, yeah, I think. More generic than. And that other one, the one where Brad Pitt plays at the workout. Oh, guy. burn after reading. Yeah. Yeah. Again, another one was like, eh, I see what they're doing, but yeah. it doesn't quite hit. Yeah, it's it's something about the combination of thrills or thriller or, or violence mixed with comedy. Those those seems to be the ones that I get most excited about. And yeah, No mm-hmm. Country is, is is funny, I guess, in some points. Like Sugar is, uh, he has just some. Lines that, uh, I, well, I guess they're they're so frightening, but they just appear funny. His delivery, well, they're just they're just dark. His, they're his just like delivery and, and yeah, the, uh, persona and character. There's a design. Weird, yeah, there's a there's a charmingness to him yeah. that, that shouldn't be there. It shouldn't work. Yeah, but it does. Like you still you because but he's, he's fascinating. It's his monotone delivery, I think, that makes it funny and uh, and but also a, a a guy that lives by code. Yeah. 
you know, he, uh, he, you know, he's got a way he lives by and, uh, and you know, when he flips that coin, yeah. if it goes the other way, I, I think he's, he, he honors it, right? When the coin yeah. goes the right way, he's yeah. like, yeah. you know, and there's something admirable about that too, but also just like the, the crazy uniqueness of that weapon, like yeah, the, the, the cattle, cattle thing, what do you call it? yeah, the yeah. cattle punch, yeah. cattle punch. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty unique and interesting too. So, yeah, but I still think, I think, you know, the Coens are filmmakers that they're, no matter what they're doing, they're always interesting. Yeah. You know? Uh, and even, like, did you see Macbeth? Yes. What'd you think of it? I, it, it's very, it, it's kind of like a movie like this. It's difficult to um, get excited about dense material, but, yeah, having studied it in, in school and I, I knew what the plot was about and I enjoyed watching it. The framing, everything. What it's is gorgeous. It's, it's like it's one of those movies where I, I, when I was watching it, I was like, "This is gorgeous. The performances are fantastic." Yeah. But at the end, I'm just like, it felt a bit hollow. It just yeah. it didn't grab me in a way. Like I, I love, I, I like the experience. Does Shakespeare today grab you? And any Shakespeare? Sure. Yeah. I think, I think so, yeah. it can, but it's also I think it's all, the problem with Shakespeare is probably that it's like all the famous ones we know the stories. Yeah. We've seen it done before, and so it's hard to like shock us yeah. or really grip us because we know where it's going. Yeah. Right. Um, but I've seen. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think what I like the last Shakespeare that really really grabbed me. Um, well, I see your Romeo and Juliet poster on your wall. Hey, man. Leo. There's Leo. <laughs> the Leo. That one. The Baz one. Um, but, uh, but I think there, there's... It can be... I think the, the one of my favorite... Actually, that's not true. The, the best Shakespeare I've seen... Uh, and I'm giving a shout out uh, because one of my friends is, is, was the star of both of these plays. Mm. Was... Um, I can't remember. It was the um, the Shakespeare in the Park, the one that is done in uh, High Park. In High Park. Uh, like almost Twelfth a decade. Night. No, no, almost a decade ago, they did Romeo and Juliet, um, and Christine Horn played Juliet, and they did this thing with it where they didn't necessarily play it as a tragedy. They played it more like a romantic comedy. What? Well, in the sense that it was the first time I watched Romeo and Juliet, and I felt like I got it. Yeah. Because. You know, Juliet's 14 in the play, and Romeo's not that much older. Like, they're fucking kids. Mm-hmm. They're stupid kids mm-hmm. that just get caught up in, in an early love and do stupid things. And they played it like that. So they played it like, not ditzy, but like just ignorant kids that think they know more than they do. And it was like yeah. watching it going, oh, fuck. And it felt so... And so when the, when the play turns and it gets into the tragic... It hit me so much harder because I was like, I don't want, like, they're just dumb kids. Like, they're just dumb kids. Someone stopped them. I was, I knew how it was going to end. Yeah. But I was sitting there going, oh, I don't, because I fell in love with her and and the guy that played Romeo so strong. Mm. But then also, you know, almost a decade later, uh, pre-COVID, they did, um, I believe they ended up calling it Prince Hamlet. But Christine played Hamlet. Mm. Uh, They did this really fascinating, um reverse gender but also all over the place and they had one of the characters was deaf and, and signed the language yeah, and awesome. and they just did they just really um played with different like genders and you know sexualities and ethnicities and but it worked it worked really yeah. really really well it didn't feel like they were doing it just to like be uh, evocative um and and they also did like they took the this this the script and they kept it but they remixed it and they did, and they kind of told it almost in like a Tarantino-ish fashion, where they took different scenes and put them in slightly different yeah. orders and framed them in different ways. Where it was just like, oh my god, this is a yeah. brilliant, nice. And so I was really, really engaged with that. Better so than I have been probably in any of the film adaptations, because I think when they do film adaptations of Hamlet or of Shakespeare, they feel like they have to be so s- slavish to the material. Yeah, you know where that one. Uh, you know, it didn't deviate from the text. It just kind of reorganized it in a way that was more interesting yeah. for modern audiences. Um, yeah, Miller's Crossing almost felt like Romeo and Juliet-ish with the two rival gangs and the, you know, um, yeah, with Tom and uh, Verna and there's, well, the love interests. And, yeah, there's a sweetness at the end when you realize he ha- was on Tom's side the whole time. Yeah. But even he doesn't stay with him in the end. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's just the the two rival families in the same town kind of uh, screamed a little little Shakespearean to me as well, which you mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, you called it Shakespearean. Well, they're big, like they you know. That way, I think obviously Hamlet's the, or Macbeth's the first time they've ever outright done Shakespeare, but they're you can tell like they're they're very literate mm-hmm. the Coens, right? Yeah. But I also love the Coens because they're not, you know, beneath a lowbrow joke. Yeah. Amidst oh, yeah. their stuff, which yeah. I'm a big fan of. Yeah. I'm a big fan of when when you're just like not expecting like something stupid to come in, yeah. like that moment when he hits him with the chair. Yeah. And he just stands like, Yeah. What was that all yeah. about? <laughs> it just, yeah, it's that unexpected moment yeah. where you're not expecting the big thug to be like, "Why? Yeah. Why'd you hit me?" Yeah, and then he gets sick tech. I don't know, man. I'm I'm hoping though, like their their last couple of films have gone to to streaming with uh, Buster Scruggs and, and, and Macbeth. I'm hoping I get to see the next one in a theater. Yeah, like they it would be very nice to experience. Well, it's like, interesting now because because well, Macbeth was only Joel. Like yeah. Ethan had nothing to do with it, so they've kind of I don't know if they'll come back together or, or if they've kind of like. I'm sure they didn't have a falling out. At least I hope they didn't. But I feel like they're probably just on different paths at this point. Mm-hmm. Where I mean, they're they don't need to make another movie if they don't want to. Like they've done, they've. I, I, I don't mean Sad that for us. I don't mean that in a yeah. bad way. Yeah. I just mean that it's like you know those guys have you know given us such wonderful cinema and things mm-hmm. to like. If they decided that they wanted to pack up and do something else with the rest of their lives, I would respect that. Yeah. And understand it. But uh, so at this point, it's like. You know, they can do whatever they want, and I think they, you know, and luckily they're in the position where I think they can, too. You know, as long as they probably stay within a certain budget. You know? Well, guys, if you're listening, I will gladly fork over my $16 or $15, whatever it is these days, to to watch your next film in the theater. I'm in. Yeah. I'm 100% in. Well, thanks for joining me, man. Jeremy, it was awesome. Any, any final thoughts on Miller's Crossing? Um, Just that I feel like... It was one of those movies where I want to go back home now and rewatch it again, knowing the pieces of the puzzle, and I, I want to kind of see it how they constructed it from the beginning. And you can, because yeah. you have it. I have the disc. I just have to unwrap it in cellophane now. It'll definitely, once you know who everyone is, I think it, it is a film that gets richer the yeah. second time when you know how it's all, because you can kind of see, uh, I think you can appreciate, and maybe that's why I'm a, I'm a bit softer on, on Gabriel's performance, because... I, I know all the pieces that are moving and what he's really doing behind the scenes. Yeah. And so you can see the angle there. Uh, so I wonder if you do revisit, let me know, because I'm curious how that, how it played for you a second time. Yeah, I probably still at this point could not write a synopsis about what that was about in a, in a cohesive uh, paragraph. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm curious to watch it again. I think you should. Well, thanks again, bud. <laughs> Let's all go to Thanks for joining us for Miller's Crossing. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.